As you're seated, please turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles available on the back wall. Uh, Yeah, please pick one up. Please follow along with us as we work through this. Um, If you're joining us new this week, we do work through a book, working through Genesis, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, as we, especially these days, look at the life of a man named Abraham. And today, as we uh, come to our text, we come to a pattern of understanding our own life within the context of the world and the culture we find ourselves in. That's why you see the title of this was Christian Culture, Living Like Citizens of Heaven in a Fallen World. Uh, So Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be reading 22 through verse 34. This is the word of God. Genesis 21, 22 through 34. This is the word of God. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs that you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in order for us to get uh, a spiritual understanding of your word in such a way that it has power in our lives and works through us and goes out in the world, God, for that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit to come and come alongside this text. We might read this and think, I don't know how this applies. But Father, through your Holy Spirit, the preaching of your word, your Holy Spirit, Father, we believe that your word is living and active and that it does equip us for life inside of this world. And so, Lord, that's why we ask, send your spirit upon us. Send your spirit upon us as we look at this text and as we think about it, as we apply it to our own lives, helps us see what you might be calling us to as your disciples, disciples of Christ in this world. We ask you for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the biggest challenges uh, that we face is in connecting our Christian faith with the larger culture. And especially the Christian faith um, when it comes to places like government or media or politics or law or, or, or even inside of the family. How, how do we see those connections working about? And, and especially, how do we see those things working out when there's conflict and when there's differences in the convictions that come between 
you know, what the Bible explains about uh, the world as God has created it and the way that the world understands it. Um, the church, depending on, on the season in which it finds itself in any nation, it, might, it finds itself in a different, uh, needing to make somewhat different responses at different times. Uh, to explain that, I'm going to explain it like using the seasons. So seasons of the year, and to compare that with how the culture around is responding to the church. Um, we might talk about springtime. And a springtime is when, you know, for our own spring, we see lots of growth happening. And, and there are times within different nations throughout history where the church has, uh, you know, it might be small, but it's growing. There's, there's growth and new life that's appearing. And, and, and the church has some freedom in what it does. Um, there are times of summer where uh, the church reaches a sort of cultural ascendancy. Um, you know, it might become the dominant belief in a nation or a land, and, and there's relative peace and flourishing within that space. But then there's also autumn. And autumn is the time when the Christian faith begins to fall out of favor inside of the surrounding culture. It might face opposition. It might face a, a chipping away at the foundation. It might sense a cultural decline marginalized, even ridiculed, uh, you know, the, the people may experience those things. And finally, there is a season of winter. And winter is times of persecution. It's times of flagrant opposition as the world seeks to, to suppress the, the, the gospel message, to undermine the message of the church, of the Christian faith into the world. And depending on, you know, where we find ourselves, Christians obviously have to behave a bit differently in each of them. Um, Christians in China believe the same things that Christians in the United States believe. But, you know, we see because, you know, they have immense persecution that happens over there, um, they, they um, have to work out their faith in a different way than we do inside of the United States. You know, it might make us ask the question, well, where is the United States now? Which of those seasons are we in? And to me, at least, it's pretty clear we're in a season of autumn. There's a sort of cultural decline that, that's, that's there. And although we know that Christ wins in the end, you know, that we know that the Christian faith may not have the cultural place that, that it used to. And, you know, if we're going to seek to be faithful in that, you know, we recognize that, that um, our own generation might face uh, different contexts than generations in the past have. Now, now, the Bible is clear about one thing, is that, um, that the world is not our home. And no matter what season that we find ourselves in, whether it's a time of, of summer and great blessing and prosperity, or times of winter and times of great difficulty, we are reminded that this world is not our home. We belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that citizenship um, in that kingdom of heaven trumps um, any other citizenship that we have in the world. That's why uh, books like First Peter, he calls us elect exiles. Or he calls the church, you, he calls you, us, sojourners and exiles in the land in which we live. Uh, we're on a pilgrimage uh, through this world to glory in heaven. This world's not our home. We, we ultimately look towards another and so as we are on that pilgrimage, we know differences, we notice the differences in the two kingdoms, the two kingdoms of which we um, live among and the one that we're headed to, the one that we ultimately belong to and the one in whose context we find ourselves. You know, the beliefs, the values, the convictions of the world around us, they do conflict with the kingdom of God. 
And we're constantly reminded that this world will not lead us on to godliness. This world will not help us on to God. In fact, the great goal of the world is to conform us, to squeeze us into a mold that we would just fall in line with what the world wants, um, the world's beliefs, and, and to compromise, neutralize us um, along the way. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. He, he spoke about the church being persecuted as um, you know, and, and that happens is those dominant cultural forces, whatever they be, wherever they find themselves, it could be corporate, it could be in media, it could be in politics, it could be whatever, you know, where they don't, where they, they work to suppress the message of the church. They, we seek to suppress the individual uh, convictions of, of Christians. And our call, even in the midst, whatever it is, is to work at our salvation according uh, to uh, the word of God. Historically, as a nation, we've had the great privilege of being able to be as godly as we want to be. You know, that's a constitutionally protected right. That's, that's our liberty. There's, there's no state limit on you being a godly and devout person according to a Christian ethic. Um, the, the Christian conscience was not to be violated. Uh, the individual conscience mattered. John Locke said that um, conscience is the most sacred of property. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll see another quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's a quote on, on the um, liberty of conscience. And you really see, even in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's being written, established, formed a foundation for understanding our own nation, understanding how Christian liberty should make its, work its way out. But it doesn't work out that way, right? I mean, there is a massive cancel culture, which happens in the media. It happens in corporate America, um, it happens even politically, um, you know, that in the cancel culture will basically censure you if you say the wrong thing, if you say you believe the wrong thing, if you're somewhere out of step with the way the world wants to conform you, um, you know, then you get canceled. Um, people are concerned for losing their jobs. Um, if they say the wrong thing, they're nervous they're going to go through, need to come, go through some sort of re-education in order to be able to continue in their work. And it really raises the question for us then as Christians is how ought we to live in this world? And I can say the one thing um, that I don't want to do, and, and I know it's the same thing for, for, for you, is that you know, I don't want to bring reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ in this. You know, I don't want to compromise my own convictions in, in, um, in compromising with the world. I also want to honor him in the way that I do interact with the world as being an effective witness Showing the character of Christ, even as I, as, as I speak and interact in the world. Amen. And so, you know, and, and so that's what's before us as we look at life in this world. And, and, and Jesus, you know, spoke about persecution. He knew this was inevitably going to happen. If you look at Matthew 10, 16, he shows us, he knows it's going to happen. But he has some counsel for us in it. He gives a counsel to his church. He gives counsel to his disciples. Because he knows what it means to be a sojourner. He knew we'd be in difficult places, and so he said this. He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So how do we do this? And that's where I think our passage comes into play today. I think it's a helpful example. And that's because Abraham was a sojourner. 
like us, he was a sojourner. And as a sojourner, he was threatened by the nations he was sojourning in. He was not at his final destination. Um, The promised land was still in the future. And for now, he is a stranger in a strange land, much like us. And so how did he handle it? And that's what we want to look at today. That's what we want to look at today. Because it shows us how we um, can live, how, how we can deal with similar situations as sojourners in this land, in our families, in our neighborhoods, um, as we're online, as we're in, in school, in our schools, in our workplace. So let's see what we learn about him. Again, my sermon title was Living as Christians, li- Living as Citizens of Heaven in a Fallen World. First thing I want to look at is to remember that the world is threatened by God's kingdom. Remember the world is threatened by God's kingdom. Look at verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. So here we have Abraham. He's a sojourner in this land. It's in the land of Gerar, which was Abimelech's land. He was king of that, and he felt threatened by that. One of the things that strikes me as I read this is that who he had with him, right? He has the general of his army. There's a reason why he has the general of his army with him. You know, there is a veiled, subtle threat which goes behind this interaction with Abraham. I mean, there is some drama that's there. We might, not, we might read it as if there's no real drama, but there is some drama which is bubbling uh, beneath the surface. You see, Abimelech is nervous about the prosperity of Abraham. Abraham's tra- traveling in this land. Abraham continues to grow. And while he can, Abimelech wants to make sure he keeps the upper hand over this upstart named Abraham inside of his land. Now, why, is he, why does he feel threatened? I mean, one important thing to realize why he felt threatened is because he knows that the Lord God is with Abraham. He says it right there in verse, in verse 1. But he also experienced it in person back in chapter 20. Back in chapter 20, the Lord closed up all the wombs of all the women inside of, inside of Gerar. The women couldn't have children until Abraham prayed for them. And then they could have children. God, Abimelech saw the powerful God um, of Abraham um, was blessing him. And I think that made him nervous. You also see that he uh, was nervous about Abraham's ascendancy. Um, Abraham had continued to grow in wealth. He continued to accumulate um, more flocks. And and I believe more people were coming towards him um, as that happened. He uh, had some military strength. We've seen that in past chapters. Now he had a child who's going to be his heir. Um, And if you remember back in chapter 20, Abimelech gave Abraham free use of his land. Said, go ahead, you know, wherever you want, go go wherever you want. Um, That's going to come back in the story here, isn't it? Um, but, you know, all of these things, he sees this, this Abraham's prosperity growing. And there's the, there's the feeling of an impending threat that's, that's, that's coming up here. You know, it's, it's not making him happy. Instead of seeing that maybe he could be drawn along in this blessing, he becomes threatened by it. He doesn't have a desire to build God's kingdom. What he ultimately wants to be is to make sure that his own kingdom doesn't come at at, at some bit of loss 
in the, in the future. So, um, and so he really wants here at the beginning to put Abraham in his place. And so he does, you know, what the world does, and he uses force and intimidation in order to get his way. Again, who's with him? The general's with him. Subtle threat is being implied throughout this whole time. So let's get Abraham to comply. Let's get Abraham to give us what we want. Maybe we can get Abraham to give us a little bit of money. Um, but, you know, through some bit of force, we're going to see that that happens. Now, he was not happy of the growth of Abraham. And in the same way, as the world looks at the growth of the church, the world is not going to rejoice in the growth of the church. It's because as the church grows, as people come to faith in Christ, the opposition of the world also tends to grow. That's because the kingdom of man is alienated from God. The kingdom of man is built on sin, it is built on the flesh, it is built on power, it's built on money, but it's not built on the things of God. And because of that, the church stands as a hindrance to evil. As the church should stand as a hindrance to evil. What the devil wants to do is to, is to steer the world away from God, away from the law, away from his church, away from truth. That's why we have that verses like Ephesians 6.12. If you look at Ephesians 6.12, because we see that the spread of the gospel is a threat to uh, the power structures throughout the world. Um, Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. There's a wrestling that's going on because there are all these systems which are set up to lead people into spiritual darkness. And the church of Christ is trying to make truth and light known. And so that opposition has been part of the church since the beginning. We can look all the way in the book of Acts, the beginning of the church. The book of Acts tells us the beginning of the church from its infancy up into its growth and maturity. And um, you remember how persecution, you might remember how persecution started there. You know, in Acts chapter 4, we see the church growing. We see 5,000 men numbered among the church at the time. There's also women. There's also children. And so it seems to be growing in the city of Jerusalem. And then what happens? The leaders of, of, of the city um, they're, they become nervous, and they arrest Peter, and they arrest John, and they threaten them, right? Well, the church continues to grow, and local leaders continue to uh, be threatened by them. So you move forward to Acts chapter 8, and what happens? Again, thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. It continues to grow. There's no sign it's going to stop, and the leadership sees it's a problem to their own authority there. And so a mass persecution breaks out. And as the gospel spreads throughout the book of Acts in different cities, you see opposition growing. You know, as the church grows, there's a desire to crush it because it doesn't fit in with the, powers, with, with the world's agenda, with the kingdom of man. And we could go throughout history. We could look at the, the persecution of Christians under Nero and in, under the Roman Empire. We could look all the way today. We could look at nations like China today, which are experiencing immense persecution um, under under dictatorial leadership. Why? You know, it's because, you know, the church won't, you know, come under, won't comply with, with you know, that, um, you know, that, that those um, ungodly, unchristian um, ambitions that these nations have. You know, Christians are called to be good citizens, but they're called to be citizens for a greater kingdom. 
you know, Christians don't, aren't call, are called not to sell their children or themselves out to the world's standards. They want something better for the world. And when any person takes um, allegiance to Christ over allegiance to the world, you know, that the worldly leaders, they're bothered by that. In, in the ancient church, is, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? The words that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, would earn a person a death sentence. And so leaders like that know uh, that the church stands in the way of oppressive systems. They can't get Christians to conform to the worldly standards. And so they use the one thing they know to get them out of the way. They use force, persecution, and attack. And we ought, ought to remember that the world will, will not love the growth of the church, but th- there's an opposition to it. The devil hates that. He hates to see people love God. The devil hates to see people leave the world. And so he threatens to shut it down. I mean, one picture of, of the success of a Christian witness is the amount of opposition which comes against it. His goal is to shut down interest in godliness and in truth. And if we're going to stand, you know, there's a reminder, we need to stand together. Because how does the devil work? He isolates, he separates, he brings one person off by themselves because they're easier to uh, grab there. But as we, as we connect together as a church, as a body of Christ, witnessing together, you know, we find encouragement together. All right, the world will not love the building of God's kingdom. So what does Abraham do? We can see in verse 24, he works with Abimelech. You might remember Jesus' words. He said, be wise as serpents and innocent as, as dove. doves. And so Abraham is in this difficult spot. He knows what Abimelech could do, but he also trusts the Lord. And so in verse 24, we see him making peace. And that's our second point, make every effort to live at peace. Verse 24, Abraham said, I will swear. Just really a, a pretty simple response to this, a simple agreement with Abimelech. He's at, at, um, in Abimelech's land, and, and he's going to work together with him. And in fact, we see he's even going to pay some sort of tribute to Abraham for use of that land. If you jump down to verse 27, we see, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So they make a covenant together. He gives sheep and oxen. So he's not going to contend with him. He doesn't threaten him back. He has an army, but he doesn't raise them up to take uh, on the kingdom of Gerar. He doesn't squabble over its right. He has no court to sue him in. And he recognizes what he needs to do as a sojourner. And so he makes his tribute, enters into that covenant. If we're going to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, we need to do what we can to live at peace with all people. Jesus himself calls us to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God. In Romans 12, 18, Christians are are called to peace. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice the words there, live peaceably with all, not just within the church, although we do need to live peaceably within the church, but also with our neighbors outside of the church. Loving our neighbor means seeking their good which shows up in the way that we interact with them. Even our own political environment or media environment, it can be so contentious and so vitriolic and those things, you know, we have an opportunity to display the character of Christ even within those, even in standing on the truth. So even when wrong things happen in our world and when wrong things happen to us, there's, there's still a peaceful way in order to address them. 
Even when Jesus faced injustice, he trusted and he leaned on his own heavenly father. Look at 1 Peter 2, 23. 1 Peter 2, 23. When he, Jesus, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here, as the Apostle Peter writes this to the church, he's presenting Jesus as a model. And the church he's describing here in First uh, Peter chapter 2, he's describing to it the exiled church, the church which is sojourning, the pilgrim church. You know, th- this world is not their home. And he's speaking with them. He's also realizing that they don't have much power inside of the kingdom they find themselves. They're in Rome. And Rome is turning increasingly hostile to the church. And it, so as he's talking with them on how to understand their own lives in light of this kingdom they're a part of, he points to Jesus what he did. And we see his own way that he defeated evil. He absorbed the evil of the people who crucified him, right? He took that on as he took that crown of thorns, as he was beaten, mocked, ultimately crucified. But even on that cross, you know, bearing bearing the sin of his people, you know, taking away that wrath of God, reconciling them to God, you know, that's, that's the way he, he loved. You know, we, we don't see a, a, a fight against this in Christ, but we see his not reviling and trusting himself to the one who judged justly. And that's his love. And as he loved, that's how we see he defeated sin and how he defeated evil. So again, the apostle Peter writes this, writes this verse to an exiled church so they would know how they would live in a time where they have little social influence, how to honor God, how to witness, how to survive, ultimately how God will win in the end, seeking peace. Now, I was reading this book over the last week, and it describes something about Chinese warfare. And back in the 1940s, when the Communist Party ended up um, taking China, over. Um, it, it described the ba- some of the battles that were there. Um, what was happening at the time is you had this nationalist army, the current government of China, and they were stronger. Better weapons, lots of backing, and those things, but they still lost. They still lost the communists, smaller, um, and those things. Now, how did they do it? And the way the book describes it is that, you know, the smaller communist army, that they realized they couldn't take a head-on confrontation, so they split up, and they did more guerrilla warfare. They would go into a city, do their damage, and then they would leave. And then when the nationals came in, they would take the city back, but then they'd kind of come behind, take out supply lines, and they would um, attack from behind, just continually whittling down not only the army, um, not only taking weapons, but also whittling away the, the will of the people that were there. I mean, it just happened by just being amorphous, by, by being spread out. And um, there, there was no one force to attack at the time, and that's why they, why they were so effective in, in their campaigns. And as I was reading that, I was thinking about, of course, I was thinking about the witness of the church inside of the world. And especially our, 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 the way that Jesus uh, reaches the world with the gospel, and the way he reaches the world with the gospel, and in, in, in the love of his people. You know, Jesus in his death on the cross, you know, won people to himself. You know, he, he, he died for a people, to gather people for himself. But um, 
And in that, he sends them out into the world. But he disper- they're so dispersed, right? And they're so dispersed that wherever they go, the, the calling, the command is to demonstrate love. And to show love to neighbor. To show love in the community. To reach out to somebody in need. To volunteer and to be part of something in the community. You know, to, to, um, to, to share the gospel. To tell people about Jesus. And to, and, and, and to see that they're, um, and to, to show them how they can be saved. You know, and, and as they're dispersed, you know, there's no one force to go against, but you see little churches, little local churches dotted here and there, and you see Christians living out their faith here and there. And, and as, as those acts of love and as the witness of the gospel continues to grow, you know, the, the power and the kingdom of the world continues to be whittled away bit by bit, bit by bit. It makes us think for our own life. You know, are we a, a people of peace who are... Um, you know, acting out in love to the people around us. And in that way, you know, demonstrating the power of Christ and the gospel. That we're the ones who know his love because we've received his love in his, in his um, death on the cross for us. Or are we people where we go, there's contention, which is continually stirred up. Do we build others up in love? Or does conflict seem to follow you around? Loving the people of this world, it is a strategic element that we see in defeating um, the world and the kingdom of the world. And that's how, how Jesus sends his disciples out as witnesses to crush that. All right, so we see we're called to be peacemakers. And I want to go into my third point. My third point is speaking truth to the world. Now, in this account, there's something uns- that's still been unspoken to this point. And Abraham brings it up in verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So well water is pretty valuable at this time in the world, and it's pretty valuable in this place in the world. And so this is something that's probably worth fighting over. And so you can see there's a little background story to the conflict that's already there. Obviously, Abraham and his men, are, they've dug this well. They're trying, they need to live on this well or they'll die. And you see people come in and steal it. And so no wonder there's conflict that's within that land. And so Abraham confronts Abimelech over that. And Abimelech, in his time, you know, gives Abraham the full use of the well. He, he, he pulls his men back. Now, Abraham still, though, he wants to prove he's done nothing wrong. He also wants to secure the future use of the well. And so we see him making an offering to Abimelech. You know, he wants to be above reproach in his actions. Does, does one owe anybody anything? And so you see in verse 28 through 30, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, and this will be a witness for me that I dug this well. Again, remember... Abraham dug the well. Abimelech said he could use the land freely, and yet Abraham has to pay him in order to use that well. But it's also an important picture of Abraham, the person with less influence, speaking to the person of power, right? He's the person who's over him. He's the person who's threatening his life. And still, he speaks about an issue which needs to be addressed. And so we always have to realize that there are times and places where um, we have to speak in the world. You know, the world calls evil good or good evil. We realize there are times we have to address that. 
You know, when the world tries to press in the issues of conscience, there are times we have to speak to that. When the world says there's other ways of salvation other than Jesus, you know, we say, no, Jesus is the only way. There, there are things we just don't, uh, that we just don't agree with. Sometimes we need to say something. Other times we realize we have no voice. And so when the world wants you to say something that's contrary to your faith or contrary to the truth, you don't have to agree with that. I mean, sometimes the best thing is to be quiet. But what we should never do is ever give in when people want us to say something false, when people want us to say something untrue, when people want us to go against our conscience. We'd never agree. You should never agree to that. Rod Dreher, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Live Not By Lies, and he highlights the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, he was an anti-communist dissident, Nobel laureate, Orthodox Christian. He's living in Soviet, the Soviet Union, and he's trying to encourage Christians. How do they live their life? And what does he say to them? He says this. He says, our way, our way as Christians must be this. Never knowingly support lies. Never knowingly support lies. And so Rod Dreher in the book, he clarifies it by saying this. He said, you may not have the strength to stand up in public and to say what you really believe, but you can at least refuse to affirm what you do not believe. So, I mean, the thing about our world today is that our world wants you to say things which are not true. You know that they are not true. And still, the world wants you to say those things. And so we may not be the people on the front lines You know, always raising up our voice, always clamoring for others to change, but we must always be the people who tell the truth. We should never speak against conscience. Now, as a church, you know, our our role is different. As a church, you know, our, our calling is to proclaim the truth. Abraham had to speak truth to a more powerful nation than him. You know, the church is called to speak truth into the nation around us, and even ultimately to the world. The Bible calls the church the pillar of the truth in 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar of the truth. You know why it says it's a pillar? Because on the pillars, they would display um, inside ancient worlds on a pillar is where they would make announcements. They're like the billboards of the day, right? Those were used to announce things. And the church is the pillar of the truth in the sense that it announces what is true against what's false, against what's, what's evil, and what's sinful. And so the work of the church is to be a blessing to the world. The work of the church is to, to show what God's word says. To show the blessing of the moral law of God. To, to show the consequences of ignoring the moral law. And ignoring sin. The importance of repentance and faith. And showing that the gospel gives us the way of life. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Pointing out sin. Pointing out iniquity. And calling people around us our leaders, even our own president, to faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's, let's see how this ends. Verse 31. Therefore that place was called Beersheba because there they both swore an oath. So they made a covenant in Beersheba there at Bimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. They go home. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So you see the result. It's peace. Peace. Abraham hadn't moved forward, but he had preserved his place in the land. 
You preserve his place as a sojourner, and there God is going to bless and prosper him. You know, Abraham and Israel, they will continue to increase. Abimelech, Gerar, they de- decrease. And as a man of God, Abraham would survive this incident. The, the opposition was small, but it wouldn't always be. His descendants, ancient Israel, would be oppressed and enslaved by great and powerful forces. Nations and rulers would fight against the promise of God. And, and that continues today. It continues in the church. The church is still persecuted all around the world. We need to pray for the persecuted church. You know, some compromise under the threats. Many give up their lives in the love of Christ. We may feel the pressure and we wonder what we should do. The picture here for us is that we must live peaceable lives. We, we speak the truth. We point people to Jesus Christ as the way of salvation. You know, they can have their sins forgiven. You can have your sins forgiven through faith in Christ. We never speak lies. When we find cultural, uh, cultural approval, we rejoice. That's a good thing. But we never expect it. We never compromise in order to get it. And we always remember, even then, that we are sojourners in this world. It's because we have a message. Uncompromisingly hold to that truth. And so those things are critical as we interact with the world. What we choose to do will be different based on our individual calling, our place of work, and those things. But each one of us can be involved in these things. And as we do, we have the chance to share the love of Christ. We, we do our work undermining the evil of the world. And we see and we pray for his kingdom to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you said you will preserve your church through trials and tribulations, all the things the world sends our way. And God, we do pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. We can pray for our brothers and sisters even around us, even in our own nation, who feel face some sort of persecution or malignment or um, setting aside their workplace and media or whatever because of what they believe and what they say in their testimony to Christ. Father, we're hopeful because Christ has overcome the world. Father, and in Christ, our destiny is secure. Father, we are overcomers in Christ. We rejoice in that. But Father, as those who've overcome, we ask you to give us a grace to stand firm in the truth. Give us grace to seek peace. Father, help us to love the people around us. Help us to witness the gospel of truth. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.